I assure you that Joseph and I did not collaborate before today's service, but as he was praying, I thought well, that really is the perfect prayer to anticipate our passage for today. We are sojourners, we are strangers, we are pilgrims, and we are, in a sense, exiles living in a world that is not yet what it will be when all things are made new. Perhaps the most popular way to summarize the Bible's overall plot line is to use the three terms, creation, fall, redemption. But there are other ways to summarize the meta-narrative or the large story of Scripture. Thomas Aquinas emphasized God, humanity, and Redeemer. Augustine spoke of two kingdoms, the cities of God and man, in which the city of God ultimately triumphs over the cities of man. But the Bible is also the story of exile and return, or restoration, exile and return. The Bible contains numerous local stories of exile and a longing for restoration, But behind all the local stories is a meta-narrative of humanity's exile, and ultimately it's return to God through the Incarnation. For a moment, let's consider some of the local stories. Adam and Eve were exiled from their home in the garden. Cain was exiled to the land of Nod. Noah was exiled across a flood into a post-apocalyptic world. Abraham was exiled from Ur to sojourn in the promised land. Joseph was exiled to Egypt to prepare the way for his family, who would also be exiled. Moses was exiled to the wilderness to tend sheep. The Hebrews were exiled in the wilderness for some 40 years. Naomi was exiled to Moab during a time of great famine. And likewise, Ruth was exiled from Moab, dwelling as a refugee in Israel. David was exiled to the wilderness, fleeing Saul's wrath. David was later exiled from Jerusalem when his son launched a civil war to take possession of his throne. Elijah was exiled in the wilderness, believing that he was the last true prophet. The northern tribes were exiled into Assyria. Judah and Benjamin were exiled to Babylon. Jeremiah was exiled to Egypt. Daniel and his friends were exiled to Babylon. And Jesus predicted the disciples' exile. They will throw you out of the synagogues. And Saul's persecution exiled Christians into Judea, Samaria, Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, and as far away as Rome. And in fact, the Bible's final book was penned in exile. And likewise, all of human history is littered with stories of exile and a yearning for restoration. In recent centuries, the terrorism of the Middle Passage brought millions of slaves to the Western world. The Indian Removal Act and Trail of Tears was an ethnic cleansing of Native Americans driven from their ancestral homes, many carrying their Bibles. In the First World War, more than a million Armenian Christians were exiled from or murdered within the Ottoman Empire. 
In the Second World War, several million Jews were forcibly exiled from their homes across Europe and driven into the Holocaust. And since the Second World War, the Israeli government has systematically exiled thousands and hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. According to the Watson Institute at Brown University, some 38 million people, 38 million people have been displaced from their homes as refugees in global conflicts since 9-11. And the war has resulted from 9-11, 38 million people have been displaced. And how large a number is that? Well, take the entire population of South Carolina... And Alabama, Louisiana, Kentucky, Oregon, Oklahoma, Connecticut, Utah, and Iowa. That's 38 million people. And that does not include the refugees in the war in Ukraine. So is it any wonder the Bible has much to say about the status of refugees, of sojourners, of pilgrims? God continually sets his affections on three people in the Old Testament. The widow, the orphan, and the refugee, the stranger, the sojourner, to use the word in our ESV. In fact, one of the reasons that God drove Israel into exile in Babylon and Assyria is that the nation broke his covenant and refused to care for the displaced Deuteronomy alone has 20 references to the refugee, the widow, and the orphan. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 18. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, the refugee, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Leviticus 19 and verse 33 says, When a sojourner, a stranger, sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Why? For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. And listen to Ezekiel chapter 47 and verse 21. So you shall divide this land among you according to the tribes of Israel. You shall allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the sojourners who reside among you and have children among you. They, the sojourners, shall be to you as native-born children of Israel. With you they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel." In whatever tribe the sojourner resides there, you shall assign him his inheritance, declares Yahweh your God. Now, did you know these verses were in the Bible? Now, I don't intend today to get into the whole conflict in the Middle East. That's not my intent. But I do want to say that God hates the systematic abuse of Palestinians that's been prosecuted by the Israeli government for the last 70 years. And God equally hates acts of Islamic Hamas terrorism perpetrated, by, perpetrated against Israel today. To listen to the news, you might think there's only two options. Actually, for the Christian, we have to think more responsibly and biblically 
about what's going on. And I, I'm, I'm really tempted to take some time and really work through all this. I may do that in the future, but I'm not sure now. But the question I want to raise is this. When we look at the current conflict in Gaza or the West Bank, or we look at the exiles in Ukraine, or you look at the bitter poverty of Indian reservations in our own country, you look at the problem of exile in every tribe and tongue and nation, and believe me, it's all through the world, what is the solution? How will this ever be solved? And what we have to realize is that the heart of the, at the heart of the Bible is a greater story of exile and a greater story of return. Not just a local story, but in fact a sweeping meta-narrative of Scripture from beginning to end. And right at the heart of it all is a story of God's own exile and return. The Son of Man was exiled to an animal feeding trough on a fallen planet. His family fled to Egypt as exiles. He was numbered among transgressors, gathering along the muddy banks of the Jordan. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. Unlike the foxes and birds, he had nowhere to cradle his head at night. And he fled to Galilee, learning that his friend John the Baptist was arrested and would soon be beheaded. He lived his life as an exile. And we find him now in John chapter 14. Shall we turn there? John chapter 14, where the exile is even now being betrayed. As we speak, he's being betrayed and is staring into the abyss of the greatest exile in all of human history. In John chapter 14, we are less than 24 hours away from that moment when the world will suddenly be shrouded in darkness and the light of the world will be extinguished on a cross. The Creator will be buried in the heart of His creation. But with the story of every exile, there is a longing for return and a restoration. And in John 14, Jesus reassures his disciples that there is a return. And not merely a return for Jesus, but a return for all of his disciples. The incarnation ends our exile. And that is the larger message that Jesus communicates to his disciples in John chapter 14 even though they are ill-prepared to receive it. Let's take up our reading then with verse 1 and read right down through verse 14. We've been through some of this material already last week. but Let's read again the passage. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going? Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? 
Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, as we discovered last week, the passage, beginning back in chapter 13 and verse 36, reveals three main questions the disciples, at this incredibly late hour of his ministry, still have for Jesus. Three issues they still do not completely understand. Number one, where is Jesus going? Number two, who is Jesus? And number three, what is the future of his mission? And we actually dealt with a third question last week. I'm interested today in the second question. Who is Jesus? But remember, contextually, the first question really highlights the second question. They don't know where Jesus is going. And why not? Because they have yet to grasp his true identity. And that's how the passage flows. The first question moves into the second question. So let's work back at our text, beginning with verse 1, and just notice how the text progresses. Verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. That's just to believe in one is to believe in the other, right? In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And Jesus' statement is a response to Peter's question back in chapter 13, verse 36. Lord, where are you going? And Jesus' response is a comfort not only to Peter, but to all the disciples. Thomas also, in verse 5, did not know where Jesus was going. And you have to appreciate the irony of the situation. The disciples should have been the one comforting Jesus at the moment of his supreme emotional and psychological duress. He is staring down a cross. But instead, it's Jesus who is the one lending support, comfort, and reassurance. Let not your hearts be troubled, he says even as he is about to sweat drops of blood in a garden? Well, why shouldn't we be troubled? Well, Jesus assures us the place of our final rest is not here. It is not now. 
he will leave. And when he leaves, he will prepare and bring about, prepare the place and bring about our final return from exile. And Jesus explains that in the Father's house are many dwelling places. That is a literal rending of the Greek. And do you suppose that God wants those dwelling places to remain empty? Well, certainly not. Verse 3 then follows naturally. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus will surely return for us who live here in exile. And when exactly does this happen? Well, in the opinion of many commentators, Jesus' language here and elsewhere is deliberately, strategically vague. And that's because Jesus probably does not refer to any one particular coming like his second advent in the future. Because the truth is, Jesus has already come for millions upon millions upon millions of believers to carry them home at death. Joseph referenced some of them in his prayer today. Jesus has already come for many, many believers. Now, let me take a slight tangent here and deal with an interpretational issue. Jesus here speaks of the Father's house having many dwelling places. Some translations have mansions. Elsewhere, the Bible speaks of heaven or a new creation, or a new Jerusalem, or a throne room in the heavenlies, or a heavenly temple. So what are we to make of these disparate descriptions of the future? Where exactly are we going? How are you supposed to think about the future? When Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms, it sounds as if the Father lives in a large house and occupies a particular space. But we know from other passages that God is in fact omnipresent. That means that God fills every particle of space with the entirety of his being. It's not that God is stretched out really thinly, that God is completely in every particle of space, and yet not limited to any one particular place in space. God is omnipresent. The psalmist declares in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall your hand lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So God does not live in a great big house with GPS coordinates and a mailing address for that Amazon truck that just ceaselessly haunts your neighborhood, right? Not, nothing like that. God the Father is not in place in any one particular place. Now, having said that, God did indeed instruct the Israelites to build a tabernacle, later a temple as a space, right, for his habitation, a place for him to dwell. And the sacred space of the Holy of Holies, God manifested his presence. But the idea that a mere temple could contain all there is to God is indeed laughable. 
And that's why in 1 Kings 8 and verse 27, when Solomon dedicated the temple, here's what he said. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? So when Jesus speaks of God delimited to a house, regardless of the size, we should no more think of God confined within four walls than God squeezed into the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. But having said that, there is doubtless truth in all the descriptions of the future. Whether houses, temples, cities, the new creation itself, all that is part of the future. The physical future for those who have been redeemed. But in fact, having said that, the greater emphasis of the passage isn't so much on the house or the temple or even the new creation. The greater emphasis is actually on the incarnation itself. The greater emphasis is the incarnation. The incarnation is the way to the new creation. So would you notice the shift in emphasis between the dwelling places of verse 2 and the presence of Jesus in verse 3. Jesus does not say in verse 3, I will come again to take you to your dwelling place, even though there is a future dwelling place. But look at this. But to myself. And Jesus' true intent is found at the end of verse 3, that where I am, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus was incarnated and exiled into a fallen world in order to bring about a resolution to human exile. He desires to be with us forever. The incarnation is all about emplacement. And God has found a way to permanently reunite himself with his lost creation. God emplaces himself in the creation God manifested himself in particular time and space. And Jesus will make the emplacement permanent. When Jesus speaks of the Father's house having many dwelling places, he's speaking of our permanent emplacement in his presence. Now, presumably, again, God does not live in a large house with a picket picket fence around the front and a mailing address. You know, if you just get in a rocket ship and go past Pluto, there it is, right? That really is not the main point. The main point is that we have an eternal dwelling with the Father through Jesus Christ. We have an eternal return from our exile as we have been displaced as refugees from God's presence. Now, this emphasis, I believe, becomes really clear as the passage proceeds. The passage transitions from the first to the second question. Where are you going? Here's the second question. Who are you? And the answers to those questions are, in fact, intertwined. Who are you? Where are you going? Well, actually, the answers are quite intertwined. So let's follow the development. The natural, logical question that follows Jesus' statement in verses 1 through 3 is something like, well, where are you going? And Jesus anticipates the question in verse 4. And you know the way to where I am going? And you have to read that statement with a 
question mark at the end. He's asking that question or making that statement because the disciples don't really understand. And you know the way to where I'm going, right? Right? Actually, no. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? We don't understand. And why don't they understand? And the reason is very simple, because they don't understand the second question. Who is Jesus? They are thinking about a GPS coordinate, when that's not what Jesus is talking about at all. Jesus himself is the way. Jesus himself is the place of emplacement. Jesus is returning to the Father, but actually, Jesus is one with the Father, Jesus' humanity is about to pass through death and resurrection and right back into the presence of the Father. So Jesus does not give them a GPS cord in the sky somewhere. Go over here. Actually, look at what he says. Verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the return from exile. Jesus is is the place where God has emplaced himself into human history. Jesus is the return to Eden. Jesus is the new creation. Jesus is the return to the Father's house. Jesus is the way into the Holy of Holies. So friends, if you're looking for the road out of exile, then look no further than Jesus. All access to God is through Jesus If you're looking for GPS coordinates, then at least find the location of the human body belonging to Jesus of Nazareth. If you are looking for Jacob's ladder, John 1 already told us it's Jesus. He is the way. Now, verse 6 is, of course, widely celebrated and widely preached. But don't stop with verse 6 and view Jesus exclusively as an intermediary between God and man. Kind of a halfway point in between. He certainly is that, but there's a whole lot more to it. Jesus is an altogether different kind of prophetic intermediary than Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or Hosea, or any of the prophets. These individuals receive God's word and then transmitted it to the people of Israel. But Jesus doesn't merely stand between God and man, pointing the way further up the road, like, oh, go down that road over there, take a right, and you'll find God. Or walk up the ladder, you'll find God up there. Actually, look at what Jesus says in verse 7. If you had known me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. He actually doesn't point away from himself. Go down that road and you can find God. He points at himself. Look at me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. Now, can you imagine Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel speaking that way? Impossible. If you're traveling down the road to meet the Father, well, just stop. As soon as you've met Jesus... Because you've arrived. Actually, it might do us good to get beyond the road metaphor altogether. When Jesus says he's the way, 
Don't think merely about a destination. Think means. The incarnation is the way or the means, the means by which God has pulled off our reconciliation. It's how we did it. It's the means. This is the way he's got it done through the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus says, look, to know me, to know me is to know God the Father. Jesus wasn't merely speaking for God as some ancient prophet. He was speaking as God. And if you know Jesus, then you know the Father. In other words, if God the Father placed himself on a human body and he wandered around Galilee and came down to Jerusalem, what would he do? What would he say? What miracles would he perform? Answer it. Look at Jesus. Just look at Jesus. God the Father wouldn't look like Jeremiah or Isaiah or Elijah. He would look identical to Jesus of Nazareth. So quit looking for the road map back to God's house and treating Jesus as a roadside attraction. He's not that at all. Jesus is the arrival into God's presence. When we're standing in his presence, we are in the very presence of God. The incarnation is the way back to God because the incarnation is God. Now remember that voice that I've referenced often that thunders so continuously throughout all the Old Testament. All through the Old Testament, God just keeps speaking right out of heaven over and over and over again, thousands of times. But that voice becomes almost completely silent in the New Testament. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him at the transfiguration. Fourteen words, followed by silence. And did you know, by my count, I think this is correct, we only have 25 total words, 25 total words in our English translation, spoken by the Father from heaven in the Gospels. 25 words, that's it. And 11 of those are repetition. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Add to that the statement in John 12 where the Father says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. That is Jesus' name. I have glorified it and will do so again. And that's it. That's all God bothers to say to anybody out of heaven. Why? What's the point? Why is he so quiet? And the answer is, if you have been correctly observing the life of Jesus... And listening to his words, you have heard and you have seen the Father at every step along the way. The voice of the Father doesn't come ringing out of heaven. It proceeds out of the, vo- out of the mouth of a man. Listen to this man and you are hearing the voice of God. So look again at Jesus' response to Thomas in verse 7. From now on. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Well, this is extraordinary. Nothing changes. He wanted to see the Father. Nothing changes. And Jesus says from now on, you know him. You've seen him. But God the Father doesn't suddenly reveal himself. So when Jesus says from now on, you do know him and have seen him, he's actually talking about himself. He's pointing right at himself. Thomas, it's me. It's time for you to recognize who I am. You know the Father When you know me, it's that simple. You already know the way back to the Father's house, Thomas. 
You just can't see me for who I truly am. But suddenly, when Jesus resurrects and appears, Thomas all of a sudden has all the pieces just fall into place. And he looks on the resurrected body of Jesus Christ and he sees the scars and he says, my Lord and my God. He's the way. The truth was there all along. Thomas just hadn't seen it. And Thomas is not alone. In verse 8, his fellow apostle Philip comes to his aid. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. Just show us God already and we'll be happy. But notice the response. Jesus doesn't point the figure up the road or up the ladder. You can find him over there after a long journey. Jesus says this, verse 9. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you want to know the Father, you've got to know the man, Jesus of Nazareth. The way is standing right in front of you. So Jesus is here inculcated into his disciples a new way, a revolutionary way of thinking about how to know God. If you want to know God, you must know a man. If you want to know God, you must know a man named Jesus of Nazareth. And to fail to know the man is to fail to know God. In his Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin argued that there are two kinds of knowledge in the world, and only two. Calvin says you have knowledge of the Creator. And you have knowledge of the creation. And all human knowledge fits one of those two categories. And you can know God by knowing what he made. And you can know what he made by knowing the creator. Knowledge of one contributes to knowledge of the other. So to know God, I study his works. And to understand his works, I study the author. Two kinds of knowledge. However, there is one place where you can go. And both kinds of knowledge converge. There's one place where you can go and understand both the Creator and the creation. That's the incarnation. God became what He made to reveal Himself to His creation. In the incarnation of Jesus of Nazareth, Creator and creature are indissolubly, perfectly united forevermore. You cannot pull the two apart. The incarnation is the place where God emplaced himself into humanity. God became what he made. The creator became a creature in order to restore the creation to the creator and to end our exile. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And I remind you that he came right up out of the grave with a body. That is the place of our reunion. The incarnation is a place where our exile ends. The incarnation is a place of humanity's return to the Father. Jesus is the way. The incarnation, the body of Jesus, is the way right back into the Father's presence. He's been that way all the way along. The disciples just had yet to see it. 
But when he resurrected, oh, my Lord and my God. Now, Jesus, at this point, will round out his discussion by pointing the disciples back to the same truths he has been insisting on all the way along. And that's verses 10 and 11. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Do you all not get this yet? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now in verse 10, Jesus emphasized his words. Listen to what I've been saying. And in verse 11, Jesus emphasized his works. Is Jesus one with the Father? Well, what has he been saying all the way along? We'll go back to the very beginning of the gospel and just reread everything that Jesus said. Go back to Matthew, Mark, and Luke and reread everything Jesus said. What has he been saying? And go back to the beginning and look at all of his works. What has he been doing? If the Creator showed up in his creation, what would he do? What would he say? Would you expect any different miracles than the very miracles that Jesus has done? Would you expect him to say anything else? So what Jesus is calling for here, for the disciples, is nothing less than a complete re-examination of his whole ministry. Go back to the beginning. Now the next morning he is going to his cross. The disciples will be demoralized. And that's when he says, you've got to go back now, and you've got to re-examine everything. Look at everything I did. Look at everything I said. Every word, every work. And on the far side of that tomb, everything fell into place for the disciples. Jesus is indeed the way, the way out of our exile and the way home. C.S. Lewis perceptively wrote, at present we are on the outside of the world. It's the sojourner that Joseph was talking about. We are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors that we see. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. And how do we get in? Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way. The incarnation is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, friends, as Joseph prayed, I really want to remind us that we are sojourners. We are pilgrims. We are exiles. Now, we have not lost our national citizenship. And we are not living in a state of turmoil like many of our Palestinian Christian brothers. In fact, I was reading last night about Palestinian Christians and 
read several short biographies of about ten different individuals, Christians in Nazareth and other places, and all that they've been through. And there really is a sense of exile and loss and pilgrimage. And that's not just true of Palestinian Christians, but true of Ukrainian Christians. And last week, we're reminded of the persecution in China. Christian Way reminded us, and there really is a sense of exile for many, many Christians all around the planet. But the fact is, we are exiles. We live east of Eden. And so we dare not become too comfortable in this fallen world, which is but a shadow of the greater reality still to come beyond the grave. And I suspect that our particular temptation as affluent Americans is actually to deny our present exile. That's our temptation, to deny our exile, to deny the fact that we are sojourned. Maybe we don't do it with so many words, but the way that we live in our hearts, we can live so comfortably with our warm houses and pleasant vacations and great health care and growing retirement accounts that we forget we are exiles. And our particular temptation might be to succumb to the false gospel of the prosperity gospel, the Joel Osteen gospel, your best life now. This is not your best life. The prosperity gospel is a denial of our exile. It causes us to no longer desire our return. And our particular temptation is the very temptation that James warned us about on Wednesday evening James warned us about getting too close to the world and loving the world too much. The fact is, friends, when trouble comes, and it will come, even in our very comfortable worlds, we do need to remember that we are pilgrims. We live east of Eden. And we need to look again at our shattered world and recognize that this is, thankfully, not the new creation And Jesus tells his disciples in the upper room that they can expect trouble. Don't let it come as a surprise. Could a local war in Palestine escalate into a global conflict? Certainly. Could we see another pandemic worse than COVID-19? Yes, certainly. Could we see economic hardship come to American shores? Certainly. And God does send us periodic reminders that we are living in the exile. Trouble may come for some of you this week. You may get a very unfavorable diagnosis this week that reminds you, look, uh, this body is broken and fallen. I'm not living in the new creation. But friends, if all that is very troubling for you, you've got to remember that Jesus has already shown us the way through. And Jesus has already said, don't let your hearts be troubled Don't be troubled. And let me encourage you with three verses still to come. Verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that's the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. God is with us now. And verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans, implying that they were, in fact, orphaned in the world. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And finally, verse 27. Peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. 
Not as the world gives do I give to you. So, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This morning as we go to communion, can we take a moment and really examine our own hearts? This is a table that is reserved for believers. It's a table that is designed to remind us of the incarnation. There was a physical body that was broken. There was physical blood that was shed. And it's also a reminder that Jesus will eat this meal again with us in his kingdom. And that's because when Jesus resurrected, he had a human body. In Luke 24, he showed the disciples his flesh and his bones, and he ate with them. Because in the resurrection, God eternalized his humanity. And God will eat this meal with us again in the kingdom. So until then, we are to examine ourselves and to confess our sin as believers and to recommit ourselves to the truth of Christ's incarnation. But can I ask that we do something else this morning as we partake? Would you take a moment and think of brothers and sisters around the world whose condition is not like ours, who are suffering from poverty or war, exile? And would you remember these brothers and sisters and pray on their behalf that God would encourage them and strengthen them and that these three verses that I just read would be a real encouragement to them all over the world today. Can we take a moment and pray and prepare our hearts for communion?